0: And welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number 13, recorded on October fourth, 2022. I'm Albie Messing from the Wastement Center at the University of Wisconsin. And with me today are Amy Waldman and Arastu Hussow, both from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, as well as the senior author of the paper we're going to discuss, Emmy Takahashi, from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Amy is well known to all of you, but our other two guests are new to the podcast. So let me first ask Amy to say a bit more about your background and current position. Yes,
1: I got my PhD in neuroscience from Chiba University School of Medicine in Japan and did my postdoctoral studies at Boston University School of Medicine and MGH Massachusetts General Hospital. And now I'm an assistant professor in the Department
0: of Radiology at MGH. And Arastu, can you tell us a bit more about yourself?
2: Yes, I am uh, an adult and pediatric neuroradiologist. I did my uh, radiology residency and fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts General Hospital, respectively. And I uh, do pediatric neuroradiology clinical and research work at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
0: Again, thank you all for being here today. Before we get started, please send feedback and questions to A-X-D-R-U podcast at Waisman, that's waisman.wisc.edu. Today, our topic is a paper just published by our guest, Emi Takahashi and her colleagues entitled, Identification of Association Fibers Using Ex Vivo Diffusion Tractography in Alexander Disease Brains, which is in press in the Journal of Neuroimaging. Emmy, before we get into the paper itself, can you please tell us how you came to be interested in Alexander Disease?
1: Yes, so for my research, I've been using a diffusion MRI technique, which measures the direction of water diffusivity in the brain and with this technique we can image fiber connections in the brain but in complex brain diseases such as alexander disease we still don't know how accurately we can image those connections and i learned that alexander disease has a problem with astrocytes one of the components in the brain that support neuronal structures and function and I got interested to see if our technique is useful to image detailed fiber connections in brains with astrocytic problems and started working on
0: Alexander disease. So I found this paper very interesting because it's a very different type of imaging uh, analysis than is typically done for Alexander disease. And so it will be very interesting interesting to find out how much information new information we get about the disease from this kind of study i also will put in a plug for the value of brain banks for the continued value of brain banks in alexander disease research and why tissue donations will will still be a, a valuable resource far into the future so Emmy, why don't you walk us through this paper, methods, results, and what you think the conclusions are.
1: So our goal in this study was to image unusual connections in the brain diagnosed with Alexander disease and to see if our imaging technique is useful to find if the fibers are decreased or connecting with unusual brain regions in alexander disease. And we used diffusion MRI tractography technique for brains. And we found some specific connections being decreased or disconnected in the patient brain. And we also found abnormal trajectories of those connections. We found abnormalities in both long-range white matter pathways and short-range subcortical pathways.
0: We should say that you used four Alexander disease brains, and I forget how many controls.
3: Yeah, for our audience, this study looked at four Alexander disease brains and compared that to three patients who did not suffer from Alexander disease. Yeah.
0: So this type of imaging you did on post-mortem brain samples, but can it be done in live patients?
1: Yes, of course, yes. So we used post-mortem imaging to, to do long scans to get better images, but yes, similar protocol can be used in vivo.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, one question I had, typically the techniques that use, there's wide variability in terms of their resolution and uh, robustness. Uh, the particular one that you employed, sometimes uh, some of these techniques are very long and may, may be difficult to uh, implement for patients. The, uh, and I know there are newer methods to accelerate these types of sequences as well, but what would you say was the approximate time of acquiring these types of sequences?
1: You mean X people?
2: Well, to get a reasonable quality one for live patients, uh, what would be the time that you would be happy with? Because obviously on MRI, the longer you scan, you get better images.
1: Right, right. So I think we are still exploring the best, scan parameters for in vivo imaging for this kind of study. It depends on what we want to detect in vivo. So so for example, big changes can be detected in short time, maybe in five-minute scans or 10-minute scans, for example.
3: Is five to 10 minutes what we're using in clinical patients that undergo these sequences? Is it typically a 10 minute, is it longer, is it shorter?
2: Again, as uh, Emmy mentioned that five minute, yes, you can get some data. And if there are uh, uh, large scale changes, uh, you can detect them with shorter scans, but smaller changes would require uh, longer scans as Emmy had mentioned.
0: You know, most people don't know what you mean by the word sequences.
1: Right, right. Right. It's a
0: scan, right?
1: Yes, yeah. scan.
2: Yeah. The, the sequences are the different types of imaging that are acquired so you can look at different ways of looking at the brain and come up with diagnoses, changes over time, so on and so forth.
3: Yeah, in general, when we do an MRI scan, it's not like an X ray that you take one static image. When we do an MRI scan, we do a series of images, which is we're referring to different sequences, Um, and those sequences help us answer different questions within the brain. Some of those sequences tell us a little bit more, for example, about water flow, um, but some of them tell us a little bit more about structure or or pathology or damage, and you get different information from each one of those sequences, which is a series of scans within that 45-minute to an hour window.
2: Yeah, and and the question that why how come it's so long is because there are multiple structural acquisitions in different planes and with and with contrast without contrast contrast as needed, so uh, they they add up over time. So Emmy, I was very intrigued that that in addition to finding that some of the expected tracks were absent uh, due to a variety of reason, damaged or edema or whatnot, uh, you found that uh, there were some tracks that you detected that are not present in normal brands. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah, not the entire fiber bundle, but we detected abnormal fiber trajectories.
2: Yeah, so these abnormal fiber trajectories are actually quite intriguing. I mean, I would be interested in what are your thoughts? Is this the brain trying to compensate? Is this an artifact of technique? Uh, Is this related to something else about the pathophysiology of Alexander's disease in the brain? So what's your hypothesis that you may have different trajectories that you would expect?
1: Yeah, so one thing is our sample size is really limited. So this is kind of a combination of case studies so there are many potential reasons for this abnormal fiber trajectories found in alexander disease brains so as you said yeah compensation is one of the potential reasons i don't think artifact those fibers are really clear thick
0: bundles so emmy what would you like to do next in this research
1: so we definitely need more samples and we'll I'll be looking we get more samples from the brain bank and then to correlate uh, our, our tractography findings with genetics information.
0: Once again, what would you say is the key take home message for patients and families?
1: Yeah, so in this study, we use postmortem brain samples to do long MRI scans to see high quality images, but, and things are going on, we're still exploring what the best imaging techniques in, in vivo studies. But if the changes we found in this study can be also seen in clinical and vivo MRI scans, those changes could be potential biomarkers for early diagnosed onset and potentially useful in finding treatment plans.
0: I think I'll add one more general comment, which is that the way Alexander disease was originally presented to the scientific community, it was described as a leukodystrophy, which is to say having white matter deficits, but it's not a pure leukodystrophy. And while the pathology was originally uh, reported as defects in myelin with relative sparing of axons, that's not to say. Uh, there's no damage to axons we're we're learning more and more about how the initial insult to the astrocyte creates a cascade of changes in all the other cell types in the central nervous system and the kinds of tracts that you look at in this type of imaging is reflecting that damage to to axons as well as to the myelin How do these results in Alexander disease relate to other disorders of the central nervous system?
3: Well, I can speak a little bit more broadly about the use of DTI, this particular technique, in other leukodystrophies. For example, in A, Maria Escalar and her team have actually looked at neonates or even prenatal changes on the MRI using this particular technique, using DTI, so in Alive humans, not necessarily autopsy special, um, not in specimens, and have determined that DTI shows early signal change in those patients with Crabbe disease. So, it, like an early biomarker, as Emmy was just describing. The challenge is that biomarkers is a very complicated field. And where DTI seems to be a little bit more useful clinically is in diseases that actually have a structural lesion or a tumor, not so much just some of these association studies. Arasti, would you agree with that?
2: Yes. So uh, DTI is used widely clinically in, for example, pre-surgical planning and resection of parts of the brain, so white matter tracks that are mapped out are preserved or preserved as much as they can be. But then there's a whole different side to DTI, which is quantitative DTI, to potential use as biomarkers. Uh, that's a more much more complicated uh, application. Certainly, even theoretically, DTI should be able to pick up earlier changes before the regular MRI shows abnormalities, although uh, that uh, might be challenging because, uh, you know, uh, one has to consider the robustness of DTI across different scanners, different time points, different institutions as well. So if those problems can be solved across the board, certainly for early biomarkers has potential, although I would say the potential has not been fully materialized yet because of the issues that surround these. Amy, would you agree with those statements i know you've worked on standardization as well so
1: we've done large-scale retrospective studies mri studies not alexander disease but other autism spectrum disorders or other diseases and found you know we studied 10 year 15 years period and scanners change were changed and even in the same scanner people changed the protocols. So it's even in the same institution, it's not super straightforward to you know, compare.
0: That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Amy, Emmy, and Arastu for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters, Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Wasteman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrett riddle family. I'm Albie Messing, see you next time.